We're going to be looking this morning at 1 Kings 16. We'll be reading from verse 21 to the end of the chapter in verse 34. 1 Kings 16, 21 to 34. Before we begin, I was told by Melanie that I'm throwing her Sunday school children off because I was saying Omri and the song they're learning with the kings is Omri. So we're out of difference to the Sunday school teachers and Sunday school kids. I'm going to change my pronunciation, and if I mess it up halfway through and say it back my normal way, I ask, you'll just have to tolerate me for a moment. So before we read from 1 Kings about Omri, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. And we pray that you would bless us today in its reading and in its preaching. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Kings 16. Then the people of Israel were split into two factions. Half supported Tibni, son of Ganath, for king, and the other half supported Omri. But Omri's followers proved stronger than those of Tibni, son of Ganath. So Tibni died, and Omri became king. Then the, in the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri became king of Israel, and he reigned 12 years, six of them in Tirzah. He bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver and built a city on the hill, calling it Samaria, after Shemer, the name of the former owner of the hill. Then Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all those before him. He walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and in his sin, which he had caused Israel to commit. So that they provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their worthless idols. As for the other events of Omri's reign, what he did, and the things he achieved, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Omri rested with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab his son succeeded him as king. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel. And he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. In Ahab's time, Heel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. As we come into the reign of Omri, we come into Israel's golden age. Omri, it takes him four years to become king. It takes him four years to fight off Tibni for the throne. But once he, once he comes to the throne, it's off to the races for him. Uh, Omri, 
comes and brings in stability in a time of instability. The people of Israel had been tossed here and there. They never knew who the next king was going to be or when the last king was going to be killed. Kings were burning palaces down around themselves. There was civil war. It was a time of turmoil for a couple generations. But then Omri comes and he brings stability. And Omri was, was a great king. Omri... Omri, he expanded the borders of Israel in ways that had been unforeseen. He brought all kinds of wealth into the kingdom. His, his dynasty lasted for 45 years, the second longest dynasty in the northern kingdom. And he left an enduring impact on the nations around Israel. Even long after his dynasty was over, long after his sons had stopped being king, the Assyrians still referred to Israel, not as Israel, they referred to it as Omri land. And so he left this enduring mark. Omri was a great king by the, Lord, by the words, by the world's standards. But God doesn't care two bits about the world's standards. Omri gets just a, a three things told us about him. We're told that he wins a civil war, we're told that he builds a new capital, and we're told that he was more evil than all the rest of the kings who'd come before him. The first thing, the Civil War, is just a, a historical note, and it only receives two verses. It lasts for four years, and he wins the war. But for reference, the American Civil War also lasted for four years, and any history book worth its salt at least gives a few pages, if not a chapter or two, to the American Civil War. And hundreds and thousands of books have been written about the American Civil War, but the Lord gives just two verses here. There's a footnote. But the next thing is more significant. Samaria becomes the permanent capital of Israel. So he buys this hill and he turns it, into a, turns it into a city. He moves the capital there. And Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom from this point all the way until it's destroyed. And, and the term Samaria, the city of Samaria, is important for us because if you hop over to the New Testament, you'll find Samaritans. You'll find the good Samaritan in the parable. And you'll find Jesus having conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. And these Samaritans, the name Samaritan comes from Samaria. These are people from the northern kingdom. But they become kind of half-breed Israelites because they get hauled into exile. And some of them intermingle and, and marry, intermarry with the pagans in the lands they're taken off into exile. But then they move back to the land. They become Samaritans. The Jews hated Samaritans. They saw them as imposters of true people of God. They viewed themselves as the true people of God. So we get the term Samaritan from Samaria. But the third thing is most important. Omri is an idolater. He continues to worship Jeroboam's deaf and dumb cow gods. And he continues to lead all the people of Israel in the worship of Jeroboam's gods as well. And we read that the worship of these cow gods was so common, was so prolific, that the Lord is provoked to anger. It says that this idolatry provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their worthless idols. They provoked the Lord. They poked Him. 
They prodded him. They irritated him with their incessant idolatry. And they did so so continually that it was like they were sticking their finger in his eye. They had received their land from God. They had received their kingdom from God. And rather than worshiping him and living in gratitude to him, instead they throw all the blessings right back in his face. So they have provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, to anger against them by their idolatry. We're really no strangers to people provoking the Lord in our own day, particularly those who at one time were the people of God. If you, if you drive down the street, you'll inevitably come upon some kind of a church somewhere, some kind of church where once upon a time the gospel was preached faithfully, where once upon a time people who believed the gospel gave generously to build that facility and to continue the preaching of the gospel, but now people are there who preach a false gospel, who have no regard for the truth of God's Word, and have sold out the gospel in order to be more palatable and acceptable and respectable in the eyes of the world around them. They take all the blessings of God which had been given to those before them and they throw it right back in His face. They sell out. Just like Omri sold out. He sold out to Jeroboam's gods. He was a syncretist. We talked about syncretists a week ago or so that there are people who tried to meld two different religions together. He would have given lip service to the God of Israel while also worshiping Jeroboam's God. And we have people just like that in church buildings all over our land who give lip service to Christ but preach a very different message from the one found in Scripture. We also know a thing or two about provoking the Lord to anger in our own land, not just in churches, but in our land. I think a good example would come from this, this last summer's General Assembly. I went down to Atlanta for the Presbyterian Church in America's General Assembly. That's the highest governing body in the, in the denomination. And we were there, and one of the things on the docket was to take a line from the Directory for Worship defining marriage and to give it full constitutional authority to define marriage as a union, a lifelong union between one man and one woman. It's very simple, right? And they just take the one sentence and give it full constitutional authority. And the, the reason for that was to give pastors and churches legal protection if and when they get brought to court for discrimination lawsuits. But as we took that vote in the convention hall in the very bottom of the hotel, literally right above us, at the entrance of the hotel, there were three flags. The state flag of Georgia, the American flag, and the rainbow flag. In the shadow of the flag, we took a vote for the gospel. Ironic, isn't it? It's ironic, but even more ironic is that it's a rainbow flag, right? The, the rainbow is a sign of God's mercy to sinners. 
It's a sign that after God had flooded the whole earth and He had started over with Noah, that He wasn't going to do that again. That He was going to have mercy on sinners. That even as the Scripture says, even as the Scripture says in Genesis 8, every inclination of the heart of man is evil from childhood. He is still going to be merciful. And in the rainbow flag as a symbol for national rebellion against God's good design for male and female, you throw right back in God's face the mercy He has promised. Provoking God, sticking it in His eye. We provoke the Lord the same way 2,900 years later as the people in Omri's day had done. But if you can believe it, Ahab is even worse. Ahab is even worse. See, all the other kings had been content to worship Jeroboam's cow gods. And those cow gods bore at least some kind of resemblance to the true God. They gave lip service at least to the true God. They said these cow gods had brought the people out of Egypt. They, they at least tried to equate the two together. But when Ahab comes to the throne, he marries Jezebel. That's a name that should make you shiver a little bit. And Jezebel is a Sidonian princess. Sidon was a a port city on the Mediterranean Sea. And this was a very strategic marriage for Ahab because if uh, if he could get a guaranteed line through Sidon, he would have access to all the Phoenician fleets. The Phoenicians were, were seafarers. They were traders. They would sail all over the Mediterranean Sea, even all the way to England in, in doing their trading. And if Ahab could have access to those ports, he could send his goods all over the world and get all kinds of other goods to his own land, and he would increase the wealth of his kingdom exponentially. So he marries the pagan woman for her money. It's never wise to marry a pagan for money. But that's exactly what he does. And this marriage leads Ahab into being a terrible, no good, rotten, nasty king. In fact, he's so bad, he's so bad the author tells us how bad he is twice. You look back at verse 30. Verse 30, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. Drop down to verse 33. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. Ahab makes all kinds of changes in Israel. One of the changes he makes is he makes an alter ego to Jerusalem. He builds this big wall around Samaria. He builds a temple with an altar. And he he implicitly says, you don't have to worry about Jerusalem. This is the new Jerusalem. This is your city now. But, But the changes that Ahab makes go far beyond just the physical. He affects a culture change within his nation. No longer are Jeroboam's gods good enough. Now the Baals are to be worshipped. And the Baals have no room for Israel's God. There's no playing nice whatsoever with Israel's history. Now it is Baal or the highway. 
And in fact, the Scripture makes very plain that worshiping Baal and his, his consort gods is worse than worshiping Jeroboam's cow gods. Right? They're both bad, but Baal is worse. Worshiping Baal is a worse sin. You know the saying, all sin is the same? That's garbage. Not all sin is the same. Jesus tells Pilate, those who handed me over to you are guilty of a greater sin. So too, those who worship Baal are, great, are guilty of a greater sin than those who worship the cow gods. Ralph Davis says it like this. I think it's, it's catchy and it's insightful. Jeroboam's state cult is like drinking polluted water. Ahab's imported paganism is like sucking raw sewage. Neither is good but one is worse than the other. Baal was a god of fertility. We've talked about fertility gods. We don't have to dive uh, into that disgusting mess again. Baal was a god of fertility. Instead of now worshiping gods that bore some resemblance to Israel's god, now the people worship hormones and unbridled sensuality. And at the head of this new cult is Jezebel. Jezebel is a princess, she's a priestess, she's a propagandist, and she's the head of the new pagan Gestapo. You will worship Baal, or you will pay the price. She's going to hunt down the prophets and kill them. She's going to try to exterminate every person who worships Israel's true God. With Jezebel, it's her way or the highway, and if she has her way, the highway leads to death. And she's going to become the de facto ruler. Ahab is just really in her back pocket. She, she sucks up power like a hoover sucks up dirt. And her religion is intolerant. Jezebel's cult does not play well with others. Jezebel's cult doesn't even pray well with others. With Jezebel's cult, we have a militant fertility cult. Now we know a thing or two about militant fertility cults. If you don't think so, I dare you to go to the next Women's March, Women's March, and stand outside the Women's March and begin explaining to these marchers that sexuality belongs inside the bounds of a heterosexual marriage that endures till death do us part, and inside that, children are always to be seen as a blessing and are never to be exterminated. You will find very quickly, I am sure, just how intolerant the fertility cult of our own day is. In fact, the fertility cult of our own day also has a princess, a priestess, and a propagandist. Her name is Cecile Richards, and she's the president of Planned Parenthood, the American taxpayer-funded organization that sacrifices thousands of children to the fertility gods of the United States every year. We have our own fertility cult in our own day, and American secularism is every bit the religion as Jeroboam, rather Jezebel's Baalism was. We have priests and priestesses. We have centers for sacrifice. It has its own doctrines and dogmas, saints and heretics. It has its own sacraments. And atop it off, it's state-funded, just like Jezebel's Baalism. When we read through the account of Israel, it's not time to get on our, our Western American high horse. It's time to get on our knees. 
and pray. Pray that our nation would stop provoking the Lord. Pray perhaps the Lord would send us an Elijah or two or ten exactly as he was going to send the Israelites in the next chapter. We'll have plenty of time to look more closely at Ahab and Jezebel in the coming chapters, but for now we come to this very strange, uh, what seems like a tack-on verse. We hear this very strange uh, addition of Heel, of Bethel, and his rebuilding of, of Jericho and the losing of his sons. Let's look at verse 34 again. In Ahab's time, Heel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. So after Joshua, after Joshua had destroyed, perhaps after the Lord had destroyed the city of Jericho, sparing none but Rahab. Joshua, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pronounces a curse on the city of Jericho and on anybody who would try to rebuild it. And that's recorded in Joshua 6. We read, Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Curse before the Lord, be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. But Ahab doesn't care about curses. Ahab doesn't care about Joshua. He doesn't care about Israel's past or Israel's God or the word of Israel's God. Ahab sees Jericho as a strategic point. And it is a strategic point. It's right along the Jordan River, right on a crossing point in the Jordan River. But the people of Israel had left Jericho unbuilt in ruins for hundreds of years because they did not want to break God's command and face God's curse. Even though it was a strategic point, they'd left it. They'd left it in ruins, but not Ahab. No, he either commissions or at least allows this Heel of Bethel to go out and build it. And even though the curse against him comes true, Ahab doesn't care. And the lesson here in verse 34, is that there is no room for God's word in Ahab's Israel. This is a brave new world. And there is no room for Israel's God. You know, things didn't work out so well for Ahab and his gods. Ahab is dead. Nobody worships Baal anymore, at least not by that name. His nation is destroyed. His city is destroyed, his temple is destroyed. There's nothing left of his altar. All that is left of Ahab is a legacy of ugliness and idolatry. He may have, he may have been a great king in his own eyes, but now he's dead. Doesn't do him a whole lot of good. And when the Israelites or the, the Jews in exile would have first read this, they would have known good and well what happens with Ahab. They would have known that Ahab is no threat to them. He's dead, and so is his nation. It's never going to be built again. They would have seen the sin of Ahab, and they would have seen how they provoked the Lord, and they would have seen that the sin of Ahab led to death and lots of it. That's a continual pattern we see in the Scripture, isn't it? That the, the provoking of God 
leads to death and lots of it. You think about, go back to the, the account of Noah like we had just talked about. The sin, of, the sin of these people, of all the people of the earth with the exception of Noah is so great that they provoke the Lord into sending destruction upon the people. The provoking of God leads to death and lots of it. You see the same thing here with Ahab and his country. And you see the same thing with the southern kingdom of Judah. They provoked the Lord, although not as severely, and over a longer period of time, they provoked the Lord until finally the Lord says, that's enough. He sends the Babylonians in. A whole bunch of people are destroyed. The city of Jerusalem is, is tumbled, and the people go off into exile out in Babylon. The provoking of the Lord leads to death in lots of it. Then there were the Jews in Jesus' day. Jesus, time and time and time again, said that the city of Jerusalem was going to be destroyed under God's judgment. He said, in fact, that it was, the judgment coming was so bad that it would be better if you weren't with child than if you were. And that if you saw the destruction coming, you should run. Don't even go back in your house to get your coat. Just run. Don't get your friends. Don't go back. Run as far as you can, as fast as you can to get away. And sure enough, just a few decades after Jesus, the Romans come and they destroy the entire city of Jerusalem. Anybody who couldn't get out was slaughtered without mercy. They didn't just provoke the Lord. They killed the Lord. And then we go, of course, forward to the end when the Lord returns. And He comes in judgment. Are you afraid of this God? Are you afraid of provoking him? Are you afraid of the God who comes in judgment and who comes again in judgment at the end of the age? When Jesus speaks about an eternal furnace with weeping and gnashing of teeth, does it send a holy shudder down your spine? And are you afraid of being at odds with this God. The thing about false religions is that they're attractive. Something about them is attractive, otherwise people wouldn't go to them. If it wasn't attractive, they'd have no followers. Jezebel's Baal worship was attractive. And the religion of American secularism is attractive as well. And for many of the same reasons. But before you go and hop on the train of the false religion, it's good to hear a clear word from the Lord. And perhaps it's clearest here in Revelation 21, verse 8. Jesus says this, speaking from his heavenly throne, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You know, at the time of Omri and Ahab, if you were a worshiper of God, you looked like a colossal loser. All your buddies were being killed. People were crying everywhere. There was all kinds of disaster. You looked like a loser. Sometimes I feel like a loser. Sometimes I feel like a loser. You look around and you see churches everywhere that have abandoned the true gospel. 
You look and you see institutions that were once proud institutions built by faithful, godly people that now have gone astray from their mission. When I go to Cubs games, I, and I hope they win today, if you go to Cubs games and you park in the off-site parking lot, I park there because it's free, you go, to the, you go to there and you park in the off-site parking lot, then they have a, a bus that takes you and drops you off right at, the, at, right at the front of Wrigley Field there. But on your way, you drive through a neighborhood with all kinds of banners saying, Chicago's proudest neighborhood. You can't even go to a Cubs game with your kid without being bombarded with just how much you've lost in the world. Supreme Court makes painful decision after painful decision, and the the social media giants do their best to subtly silence any orthodox voice that may be found on their mediums. It's almost enough to make you feel like you are a loser, isn't it? But this is what the word of the Lord says. The word of the Lord says the world will lose. And whether it's Ahab and Jezebel or whether it's the American secularist religion of our own day, the world loses. And sin loses. And idolatry loses. And at the end of the age, Jesus wins. And we ought to be so fully confident of this. And we are to be so fully confident that at the end of the age, Jesus and those who are with Him win. That we actually love our enemies. You know, it is foolish to love your enemies if you think they might win. Because you don't have anything to love them with. If you're loving those who seem to be winning, and you seem to be losing, calling them away from winning and into losing is foolishness. Only if you are confident that your God wins at the end and all those who are against Him face destruction can you love your enemies with anything resembling true love. But we know that Jesus wins. And we know that He comes from the end, He comes from heaven and goes to the ends of the earth with judgment. And we know that those who stand against Him, though they may seem like they're winning and winning and winning in this life, will lose on the day of the judgment and lose in a terrible way. And that allows us, that allows us to go out to those who are our enemies, and they are our enemies. It allows us to go out to those who are our enemies and beg and plead with them through the Gospel to come and become friends of God. Because we know that even though in some sense they are winning now, it is worth leaving all of that behind to have Christ. My favorite parable, and I've said it before, it's the shortest parable. Maybe it's my favorite because I can learn it so easily. My, my favorite parable is the parable of the hidden treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field. A man found it, and in his joy, he went and sold everything he had to buy that field. If you are going if you are going to convince people that the kingdom of God and the king of that kingdom is worth having, you have to convince them that he and it are worth having more than whatever else they can have. And if you're going to preach a gospel that will bring people out of apparent victory, 
and success and into a group of people who have historically been persecuted far worse than we have or will face any time in our lives. If you are going to persuade them to join this people group, you must convince them with the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus Christ that whatever they have is worth giving up to have Christ. And it's true. And it's true. Our victory over the world, like the song Victory in Jesus says, our victory over the world is so sure that rather than despising the world, we ought to love our enemy and call them to join with Christ who has the certain final victory. Spoiler alert, at the end of Kings, idolatry loses. And the Scripture gives us a spoiler as well. At the end of the age, idolatry loses. And so just as it would have seemed to those in Israel that they were going to lose, those of us who belong to the true God will be vindicated. Psalm 25 gives us a great assurance. Psalm 25 says the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him. Omri and Ahab had no fear of the Lord. None whatsoever. We must fear the Lord. I get a little anxious saying words like fear. Fear the Lord. Because it, it seems as though any time you preach and use words like fear and not words only like grace or love or mercy, anything that appears less than cheery, you're open in some sense to the charge of legalism. But the Lord calls us to fear Him. To see all that He has done in response to sin in the past. To fear and say, I don't want that. And he says, those who fear him are his friends. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And the men in the days of Noah didn't fear God. And Ahab didn't fear God. And the Jews and the Romans who hung Christ on the cross didn't fear God. And the secularists in our own day don't fear God. But you, you fear God. And He will be a friend to you. Now and forever. Don't provoke God. Take the passage as a warning. Don't provoke God. But fear Him. And He will be your friend. Let's pray together. <clears throat> God, we thank you for the sure and certain victory that the resurrection promises us. And we thank you for the victory which Christ has won. And we thank you for the assurance that even as we look all around us, even as we drive through neighborhoods, even as we 
walk past once gospel preaching churches, even as we hear reports from near and far of, of new difficulties, we thank you that we are guaranteed of vindication and victory in Christ. Help us to love our neighbors. Help us to love our enemies knowing that whatever they have and whatever they seem to have is worth less than having your kingdom. And to plead with them. To go to them. And to offer them something far greater than what they have. We pray that you would set the fear, the fear of the Lord before our eyes. That we might walk in wisdom. That we might be friends. Your friends. And even more than that, your sons and daughters, the citizens of your kingdom, co-heirs with Christ. We pray that you'd keep us from the foolishness of the men of the days of Noah, the foolishness of Ahab, the foolishness of all those who would stand against you. You would cause us to walk in wisdom and in righteousness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.